passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Crosswinds. Uh, as you can probably guess, we're going to do something a little different today than we normally do. Uh, we're not a super hipster church where I just sit around here like this and, and preach like this the entire time. So that's, that's uh, not what we're typically uh, about here at Crosswinds, if that's what you uh, are worried about right now. Um, for the last several weeks, we've been going through a sermon series on work and how our faith influences our work as well as, honestly, the way our work influences our faith. And in the bulletin over these past uh, few months, we've had these little cards uh, for you to be able to fill out and to put uh, questions that you might have about how your faith applies to your work, how this intersection of faith and work actually happens. And what we've done over the past several weeks is we've taken all of those and we've compiled them together and we've decided to um, basically shrink that list down into a couple different topics that we think are important, that people both from Spencer as well as from Spirit Lake have been asking about work and about how our faith influences our work. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at four questions that people here in Spencer as well as people in Spirit Lake have asked about work. Uh, And so that's why the sermon notes are blank this morning. That's why uh, it's going to be a little bit more conversational than usual, which is why I have this up here kind of as a a visual uh, sign of what we're doing this morning. Uh, But before we do that, I want to just give you a roadmap kind of where we're headed over the next few months here at Crosswinds. Uh, As I mentioned, we're finishing this series today. And the next couple weeks, about the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, three of the letters to churches in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to spend some time looking at those that are very relevant for us today as a church as we find ourselves in an increasingly hostile society and culture to the gospel. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And then after that, we're going to spend about four weeks looking at human sexuality, uh, looking at some of the biggest questions that our culture has for us today, talking about things like homosexuality, uh, what does the, the Bible have to say about those kind of things. So I uh, just wanted you to have that on your radar. And then after Labor Day, uh, we are going to start in the book of Genesis, and we're going to just go through Genesis until we finish it. We're going to go verse by verse through the entire book. Uh, I'm really excited about that as someone who likes to preach through a book of the Bible because it makes it easy for me not having to figure out what comes next in the series. I just have to open my Bible and look ahead. So uh, also you can do a little bit of research beforehand if you would like as well. So uh, that's coming up as we get into September. I just wanted you to have all of those things on your radar uh, as we finish this series on work. So I mentioned that we're going to look at four questions that, that have been asked today, uh, and we're going to uh, finish our time together by just giving a summary of what we talked about when it comes to work. So let's go ahead and throw that first question up uh, that we have this morning, and that is this. How do I address someone who neglects their family for work? How do I address someone who neglects their family for work? We've got a, quite a few variations of this as we were uh, compiling these questions, and maybe this is something that you have wrestled with, Maybe it is something that you struggle with, to be honest. Maybe it's some, someone uh, that you are close to struggles with this. Another way to answer this question or to ask this question is to look at the balance that we must have between our uh, family and our 
work. We have to recognize that there are a lot of dangers that are facing us, whether we want to recognize us uh, or, or not. And to answer this question, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the life of someone from Scripture. We're going to look at the life of King David. Many of us are probably familiar with King David. He uh, was the man after God's own heart. And God chose him to be the king over the people of Israel. Not only that, but uh, God uh, used him to defeat Goliath and, and really bless the nation of Israel under his reign. Basically, everything that David did was successful. David was incredible at his job. God had favor upon him in a way that has never been seen before that or really had never been seen afterwards. He was a great leader for the people of Israel, especially after King Saul. See, Israel remained largely faithful to God during his reign, and it was all because, well, not all because, but a big part of it was because David was really good at his job. He was effective at his job as king. And there's a passage at the end of 2 Samuel, at the end of David's life, where he really sums up the keys to his effectiveness. If you have your Bible, I invite you to just open up to 2 Samuel. Uh, we're going to be looking at a couple passages there this morning. We're going to start in verse, or chapter 23, rather. This is the, one of the last things that David says, and it's what he says when he's summing up what he's learned as being king over the people of Israel. The keys to being a good, effective Leader. And this is important for us to recognize as we see just what David was like in his job. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. It says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. As I mentioned, this is one of the last things that David says. I think there are really two, uh, two important things that we can take away from this that tell us about how good of a leader David was for the people of Israel. First, notice what David says. He says, an effective leader, a good king, is like a light of morning at sunrise. He's like the light of morning at sunrise. Many of you have found yourself in a business or even in a church where the leadership is slightly dysfunctional, where the organization itself is just ineffective because of the leadership there. And it was tough to follow those who were in charge in those positions. But then you made an organizational change, whether the uh, business got new leaders or you just decided to switch businesses or organizations altogether, and you found yourself under the leadership of good, effective leaders. And after the long, long seemingly interminable darkness of dysfunctional leadership, you found yourself in a place that was like the light of morning at sunrise. I love that metaphor. It's so powerful of a picture. And I know that David's not necessarily talking about himself, about his rule, but it's a beautiful picture of what David was like for the kingdom of Israel. See, before David, Saul had the kingdom of Israel in a wreck. They desperately needed a just king, and praise God that David was good at his job. He was like a breath of fresh air. He was like a light sunrise after a long darkness. And so, as we're looking at, at David's effectiveness in his job, first we see that he is like a light of sunrise at the, in the morning. 
The second thing that we can take away from this is this, that David says an effective leader is one who is like rain that makes the grass sprout from the earth. An effective leader, an effective king, is like one who makes grass sprout from the earth because of rain. I think this is another beautiful picture of King David. He brought growth, he brought health to the nation of Israel that hadn't been seen before them. David was good at his job in every single aspect of the job description. He was great at it. But here's the reality. David was really good at his job. He was not very good when it came to his personal life. His personal life was a mess. After all, we can just look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. And it tells us of one of the messiest parts of David's life. And one of the worst parts of David's life, we have 2 Samuel chapter 11. David sees another man's wife uh, bathing, and so he begins to lust after her to the point where he has to have her. And so he calls her to him and sleeps with this other man's wife. After committing adultery, he finds out that she's pregnant. He knows that the law of Israel means that if you commit adultery, then you will be killed. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a slave. There's no exceptions to this law. And so he decides to try to cover things up. And in order to cover up his wickedness, his sinfulness, he decides to have her husband murdered. David neglected his personal life because of his work. He was really good at his job, but he neglected the importance of his personal life. And that neglect ruined his entire life, ruined the end of his life. This is particularly apparent in his relationships with his very, very dysfunctional family. And what we see is as he neglects his personal life, it actually leads to his neglect of his role as a father. If you have a Bible, take a look at Second Samuel chapter 13. This is a story of David's two sons, uh, his oldest son named Amnon and his second oldest son named Absalom. And uh, it's a really sad, twisted story. Uh, but Amnon, he desires after his half-sister Tamar, who is Absalom's full sister. He desires after, he wants her, uh, he, he desires her even though this is illegal. And, and just to take, take a step away from that, uh, notice the parallels between David and Bathsheba and Amnon's uh, desire after his own sister. Amnon is following after his father, just like David wanted something that he couldn't have, and so he decided to take it anyway, so also does his oldest son. So he takes his sister, he, he, he tricks his entire family into having her be alone with him, and he rapes her. And we pick up this story in 2 Samuel chapter 13, uh, verse 15, where it says this. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong and sending me away is greater than the other thing that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. So he called the young man who served him and said to him, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. 
Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. It's a really sick, messed up story. And we have to ask ourselves, why did this happen in the first place? Well, I think it's because David neglected his family. If you look uh, near the end of the story there, where it says that that Absalom comes to Tamar, and, and the first thing that he says is, were you with your brother Amnon? Absalom seemed to have known that that there was something wrong with his older brother. There was something going on there. And most likely the entire family recognized that there was an unhealthy lust that the oldest in David's household had for Tamar. And yet David doesn't do anything about it. David doesn't do anything about it and so his daughter gets raped. And yet what does he do? In response to this terrible, despicable thing that happens, silence. He doesn't do anything in response. This is honestly his first great failure as a father. He does nothing when his son rapes his daughter. Honestly, I'm guessing that David probably didn't say anything because of his own guilt. He probably didn't say anything because he didn't feel like he was in a position to say something. After all, he had just sinned against the Lord in a sexual sin just moments earlier. So who was he to be able to say something to his son? At least that's what David likely thought in this situation. And so nothing is said. Well, two years go by. And we pick up the story, and we won't finish actually reading the story. We'll just uh, talk about it here. Two years go by, and Absalom finally kills his brother. He'd been plotting for two years to kill his brother. And what does David do after this act of fratricide in his family? He does nothing. Yet again, he does nothing. Again, a great failure on David's part as a father in his household. He leaves Absalom to be uh, really just an outcast from his kingdom. But eventually he comes back and he still doesn't say anything to him. And Absalom, because of David's failure as a father, because of his concern only with his work role, Absalom actually steals the kingdom of David from him for a brief period of time. David's life, especially his interactions with his two oldest sons warn us of the danger of sacrificing our personal lives, sacrificing our families on the altar of work. It's so true for us today too. Statistics tell us that a a present and engaged father figure uh, results in in several benefits for children. I just want to run through a few of these. These are all uh, statistics. It results in a higher psychological well-being for children. 
It results in less likelihood of a substance abuse problem in the children. It results in in lower likelihood of behavioral problems for children, and an increased likelihood in higher education. Uh, a less, they're less likely to engage in sexual activity at a young age. They're more receptive to faith. The list goes on and on and on about the importance of being engaged as parents. In fact, Scripture tells us that, that we as parents are called to be responsible for the spiritual growth of our children. And this is impossible if we are absent. Deuteronomy chapter 6, a passage that we've gone to before during this series, tells us this about the importance of our responsibility. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and you, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Scripture makes it clear that the primary responsibility for spiritual growth comes to the parents and the household. But not only the responsibility, Scripture actually tells us that we will be held accountable if we neglect this calling. Luke chapter 17 says this, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That's, re- that's referring to not just parents, but, but to everyone in the church and our responsibility to care for those that God deeply cares for. It is a parent's responsibility to teach their children about God. And how are they able to do that if they are absent? So the question comes down to how do we balance work? How do we balance family? First, I think we, we set up priorities. Make sure we have priorities in line. These serve, serve as the guardrails to protect us protect us in the thick of things when, when one of our roles starts to encroach on the other one. Make sure we have those guardrails set up. Second, make sure you have a good rhythm in your life. A rhythm will provide you with the good structure to know when you should be doing stuff at work and when you should be with your family. Third, learn how to say no. Just because something is a good thing doesn't mean that you are personally responsible to see it done. There's a lot of good things out there but what is the best thing for you to be doing? And fourth, be, insu- be sure to spend intentional time with your family. Uh, there was a pastor while I was in seminary who shared a, a really good example uh, of ways that pastors can uh, protect their time. And, and he, had, he had been pastoring a church that was a very needy church. And, and he was neglecting his family because of all of the different times that he was investing in the lives of those who were uh, in the church. And there was one time where he was in a counseling meeting with someone, and the time was coming to an end. And so he said, all right, well, it's time. Uh, our time's about up. Uh, I need to, to get going. And the person said, well, what do you have, uh, what do you have next? And he said, well, I, I'm going to go spend some time with my family. And the guy said, okay, just one more thing. And, and 45 minutes later, uh, he was still there, still talking and talking and talking. He realized, this pastor realized that, that people were taking advantage of his time because they didn't see his role as a father, as a parent, as, as important as his role as a pastor. And so what he started to do was actually schedule meetings with his family. 
And so the next time that someone was in a counseling session with him, he said, well, I have another meeting coming up. And then the person would just leave. The meeting was with his children. The meeting was with his family. He wanted to be a good dad. So make sure that you set aside intentional time with your family. Now, I don't share that uh, because our church is, is susceptible to that. We have a great, wonderful, healthy church. I've never felt like people have encroached on my personal time, so I don't share it because of that. But just as a, an example of how we can set aside intentional time to be with our families. This balance between work and family is so difficult, but it is so important for us. Let's look at the life of David and learn what not to do, to not neglect children, family, and our personal lives for our careers. So that's the first question. Another question that we had was about retirement. Let's go ahead and throw that one up. Uh, It's this. Uh, Someone asked, I'm nearing retirement. How does this series apply to my retirement? In other words, how does God's calling uh, to work as a part of, of our lives, how does, how does that affect retirement? How does it apply to retirement? Many of you, uh, you're thinking, hey, this is a really good question for me because I'm pretty near retirement. Others of you wish that you were closer to retirement because you don't really care for the job you're in. So what does the Bible have to say about this question? Well, first we have to remember, uh, we need to view work as contribution not compensation, okay? So work is something that we contribute through, not that we are compensated for. Now, a lot of times we are compensated for the things that we do, but that is not primarily what work is. Work is primarily about contributing to society, contributing to those who are around us. So if you keep that in mind, then this command, this command to work with our lives is something that we can continue to do for long after we retire, as long as we are physically able to contribute. During the summer, or during the school year rather, I serve as a mentor at the Spencer Middle School here in town, and there are a number of other mentors there that are retired. That's a beautiful example of what it looks like to continue to contribute without necessarily being compensated. For the things you are doing. You see a number of people who will leave behind their full-time positions to work part-time in a support role. Again, this is another way to continue to contribute long after compensation is your primary focus. You might be wondering, well, what does the Bible have to say about retirement? Are there passages that talk specifically about retirement? Uh, not really. There, there's not too much in the Bible about retirement because it's a luxury uh, that that wasn't too prevalent in the, in the uh, first century and before that. But there is this passage in Numbers, Numbers chapter 8, that talks about uh, retirement in light of the priests. And it says this, This applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus you shall do to the Levites in assigning their duties. So notice what this passage is saying. It's talking basically about early retirement. A number of us probably are saying, hey, I can get on board with this priest thing if I can retire by age 50. Uh, So what's going on here? Basically, it's telling you that the priests were able to serve in the temple 
uh, or in the tabernacle here, uh, for about 25 years, from age 25 until they were 50. After that, they were to start working in support roles. They continued to work after that, but not in their primary role in the tabernacle. Now, you might be wondering, well, is this age discrimination? After all, if there's a really good priest who wants to, to be in the temple, why is he being required to, uh, to retire at the age of 50? Uh, this isn't age discrimination. This is really just focused on the holiness of God. Uh, Israel, the people of Israel had really, really strict purity codes. And these codes were set up to protect the people from the holiness of God and also to show everyone how holy God was. The people who were able to serve in the temple were only those who were perfect physically. This wasn't an issue of age. It was primarily just an issue of purity laws. But again, those who were in the temple would continue, or those who were no longer eligible to serve in the temple would continue to serve in a different way. We also see as we look at scripture that retirement is not primarily for our pleasure. First Timothy 5, which we looked at last week, uh, it talks about enrolling widows into the church uh, widow role, basically this office in the church to serve as a widow. And there are a couple requirements that are given here. Uh, and, and one of them is in verse 6. It says this, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. This is a really important verse about our society's approach to retirement. The way our society often portrays what retirement is. It is not a time for us to indulge ourselves, to, to indulge the desires that we've held at bay for so long. It is a time to continually faithfully serve God with our lives. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, puts it this way. He says this, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious, God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy, and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace this tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. I think that our society today has a tendency to think of uh, retirement. And honestly, I think there are quite a few people in the church that think this way too. We tend to think of retirement as a heaven insurance policy. We, we think of it as basically saying, all right, well, just in case heaven isn't real, then I'm going to spend the last 20 years of my life or so enjoying myself, basically living what I think heaven is going to be like. We have a tendency to think of retirement as a, an insurance policy just in case heaven isn't 
real. But Scripture tells us that retirement is not an insurance policy. It is an opportunity for us to finish well. Psalm 71 says this, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Titus chapter 2, Old men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Old women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Friends, in retirement, the way that we contribute will change. Our responsibilities will change, but we will continue, continue to contribute with our lives. I think the saddest two books in the entire Bible are First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. If you look at First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, they tell the stories of the kings of Judah. And there are a number of kings of Judah who are just wicked kings who don't follow God at all with their lives. And that's, that's sad, but, but it's not as sad, I think, as the kings who do follow God with their lives. Every single king in the book of 1 Chronicles and in the book of 2 Chronicles who follows God, who is considered to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, screws up in some way at the end of their life. They either reject God partially or they reject God entirely with their lives in the last few years of their life. Every single one of them. There's not a single example in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles that tells us of someone who doesn't screw up royally at the end of their life. Friends, finishing well is hard. Finishing well is so difficult. But it is our responsibility. It is the call of this series. It is the call of the gospel, far more importantly, to finish the race well. Retirement is a way for us to do just that. It's not about collecting seashells. It's about finishing the race well, continuing to contribute with our lives. So that's our second question. Third question, I'm spending way too much on those first two, so I'll try to go a little faster here. Uh, Third question, what does success look like from God's perspective versus success from our culture's perspective? Uh, Let's go ahead and throw that first picture up, if you would, Zach. All right, so a lot of us, we tend to think of success as a straight line. Some of us tend to think of success uh, in the world's eyes and success in God's eyes as polar opposites, that we will either be successful in God's eyes or we will be successful in the world's eyes. Some of us tend to equate these things to the same thing. So if you are a failure in the world's eyes, then you're automatically a failure in God's eyes. And if you're a success in the world's eyes, you're automatically a success in God's eyes. So that's the way a lot of us tend to think about this concept or this topic of success. Uh, that's, that's not a good, healthy way to think of success. A better way is to, to think of it as a matrix. So let's throw that other one up there. Um, as you can tell, I like math and graphs. I'm a visual, visual person. Uh, it's very possible for us to be successful in the world's eyes and to continue to be successful in God's eyes. It is also very possible for us to be unsuccessful in the world's eyes and unsuccessful in God's eyes. The two things are not the same thing and they're not defined in the same way. So how do we define success in God's eyes? Uh, First, we define success as fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in God's eyes. Matthew chapter 25, verse 20. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Why is he commended? We'll see in a few moments. It's because of his fruitfulness. He produced a profit. He was good at his job. He worked hard. Now that includes our work, but it's not just our work. It's all of life. Are we fruitful in our lives? Are we bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Are the things that we are involved in, are they bearing fruit? That's the first thing about success in God's eyes, fruitfulness. Second, faithfulness. Matthew chapter 25, 21, the next verse. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice that this man is not only fruitful, but he is faithful. He is a good steward of what God has entrusted him with, and he serves God well from that position. So we have fruitfulness, faithfulness. Third thing, I think, as we talk about defining success in God's eyes is service. Are we providing a service for others? Is our work providing for the betterment of society? Are we being effective in helping humanity flourish? Not only that, are we serving God with our work? Are we serving God with our lives? Are we serving others with our work, with our lives? And if we can say yes to all three of these things, if we can say yes, that we are fruitful, that we are faithful, that we are providing service, then no matter how successful we are in the world's eyes, we are successful in God's eyes. There are a lot of people today included who have reached success in the world's eyes and are successful in God's eyes as well. At the same time, there are many people who are unsuccessful in the world's eyes and are unsuccessful in God's eyes as well. Let us seek primarily success in God's eyes, not at the neglect of success in the world, but rather as its precedent. So that's the third question. Fourth one, final one today. How can I share the gospel at work? How can I share the gospel at work? I'm going to be really honest with you. If you're in a position of authority, if you have people who answer to you, uh, if you are a boss, um, this can be especially difficult for you. It can be difficult because they can very easily misinterpret your discussing your faith for you forcing your faith on them, right or wrongly. That's the way they will interpret it at times. So we have to do this in a tactful way, in a prayerful way, and in a wise way. So a couple different ways that we can share, the faith, share our faith at work. First, be a good worker. Just be a good worker. This is the foundation, the bedrock for everything uh, that comes afterwards. If you want to share the gospel with those you work with, make sure that you are a good worker first. Second, publicly identify as a Christian. The beautiful thing about our lives is no one can stop us from talking about our Sunday plans, our weekend plans, what we did in the previous weekend. Here at Crosswinds, we've decided that we are going to create the perfect way for you to bring up church uh, tomorrow when you are at work. Someone asks you how your weekend was, you can say these exact words. It was great, except for my church doesn't have air conditioning. It's great, but the church doesn't have air conditioning. Just saying that publicly identifies you as a Christian. Now the people that you work with now know that you are a Christian. That's a, that's a big step 
in this process, publicly identifying as a Christian, showing people that you are a Christian. You don't have to talk, or you you can talk easily about your weekend plans. Third, be wise and be winsome. Be wise in how you bring up the gospel. Look for opportunities to bring up the gospel in conversation. Of course, a lot of us think of wise as silent, but that's not the case. Pray that the Holy Spirit would guide you in conversations, that he would direct you in how to bring up your faith with those that you work with. Fourth, invite people to church events. Uh, A primary great example of this is the women's event this Thursday uh, up in Arnold's Park. It's a a great opportunity to invite your coworkers to a non-threatening church event that isn't uh, isn't going to be too risky for them. They're not going to feel too uncomfortable in situations like this. Another example, at the end of August, we're having our all-church party up in Spirit Lake. That's another great time to invite people to church, to invite them to a church event. There's going to be plenty of good food. There's going to be inflatables for the kids. There's going to be inflatables for the kids at heart. There are going to be opportunities for us to get to know one another. It's a non-threatening environment to invite people to. It's a low-risk way to get people rubbing shoulders with other Christians. And fifth and finally, use prayer as an evangelistic tool. Last week, if you were here with us, uh, we, we watched this very powerful living letter video from Steve Fox. Uh, Steve Fox is one of our elders here uh, at our Spencer campus. Uh, he's also the one who primarily leads worship uh, on Sunday mornings here. And Steve shared about how he has felt God lay it on his heart to pray for everyone who he performed surgery on. Every single person. And he's only had one person, I think, in the last eight months who has said, no, please don't pray for me. It's a powerful way to identify as a Christian. It's a powerful way to show your faith in action. Not only that, but you're, you're not just identifying as a Christian, but you're actually showing that you care for them, that you want them to thrive, to flourish in God's eyes. And the reality is when a crisis appears, when they start going through a crisis, if they're not in a church, there's a good chance that they will come to you because you are the closest thing to a pastor that they have. It provides you with a perfect opportunity to continue to faithfully share your faith with those who are around you. Friends, your work matters to God. Over the last several months, we've, we've looked at the ways that our work matters to God. We've looked at different ways that this is true. And as we're trying to sum this up, I think that there are probably, the, the best way to do this is just by following the story of God that is found in Scripture and seeing how work is influenced by this great story, this great story of creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. First, creation. God created everything good. And a part of his good creation is his call for us to work. Even before sin entered into the world, God commanded Adam and Eve to work alongside him in the garden, to work the garden, to keep it, to care for it, to work alongside God himself as his governors in creation. Work was created as a good thing, but the reality is it hasn't stayed that way, as all of us can attest to, and that's where the fall comes in. When sin entered into the world, work, like everything else, was cursed. It is influenced by the stain of sin. Now work can be difficult. 
It can be hard. It can be fruitless. It can be meaningless for us. We can find ourselves in jobs that we don't like all because of sin. Praise God that God hasn't led us or left us there. And that's where redemption comes in with the blood of Christ on the cross. He has made us a new creation. And as new creation, we can look at our work through the original lens that God has for us. That work is something that God created good, that it can be used for good in this world. Because we are a new creation, we look at our work through a new lens, a new perspective for a new boss, all so that we can worship God through our work. And that leads us to the culmination of history. One day when the new heavens and the new earth come and we are all glorified because of Christ's second coming, we will see that our work today is training for reigning tomorrow. You see, our work today is the way that God tests us, prepares us for our jobs in the new heavens and the new earth. When we look at scripture, when we look specifically at the new heavens and the new earth, we see that work is still a part of our lives. We will still be working in the new heavens and the new earth, but it will be perfected. It will be unadulterated. It will be joy-filled. It will be all for the glory of of God. And the way that we see our roles in the new heavens and new earth, they are defined by our faithfulness today in our work. How good of stewards we are today in the things that we are doing will directly influence how much God will call us to govern of his creation and the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, your work matters to God. Let us see it as an opportunity to worship him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your original plan for work, the way that you have structured things. And God, we ask that you would give us boldness to continue to see our work through this lens, even when it is a part of the things that we don't like about our jobs. God, that we would see it with a purpose, that you are preparing us for the new heavens and the new earth, that you are using it to allow us to worship you. God, that you have called us to be good stewards of our work. God, help us to do this all for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.